Warning, this episode contains graphic language and references to physical and sexual abuse. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. Hey folks, thanks for joining us. This is episode two of what we hope to be a long and fruitful journey across the many roads of psychology. On today's episode, Dana and I discuss the ins and outs of self-examination and how ultimately it could be one of the greatest personal benefits in life. So I think it was Socrates that talked about living and examine life. Um, I think he was trying to look at the root causes and patterns and behaviors and, and consequences of, of why people do certain things. Uh, this whole self-examined life is, has become a, a, a very popular topic. Um, what's your interpretation of a self-examined life? Well, first of all, I think it takes an enormous amount of courage to emotionally look at yourself in the mirror. Um, in my experience, given the choice, most people would rather avoid the shame and the fear and the pain that, haunt, that haunts them. Um, I think we have a natural aversion to things that frighten us or cause us pain. Um, most people that come to see me for therapy believe that there's something inherently wrong with them. And we're taught to blame ourselves for any emotional pain and fear that we feel. And this is especially true if a person has been abused or neglected as a child. I've yet to meet a person who doesn't feel responsible for the mistreatment. I think that makes it really hard for people to have the courage to really take a step away from their symptoms and really focus on what they're feeling deep down inside, which is necessary for, obviously, for a self-examined life. Most people probably don't peel enough layers away when they're, when they're doing the examination. I, I mean, I'm... I'm somebody that has, I guess, for all intents and purposes, has lived a more self-examined life in probably the last decade than I have in the prior four decades of my life. Well, I think that's true, but you're a very brave person to be willing to really look at yourself deep, deep down inside. Um, you know, uh, I, I treat a lot of people who've been sexually, emotionally, physically abused, and again, most people end up being very self-destructive as a result of those kinds of things happening to them as a child. And so th they assume that because they've been self-destructive that they caused the problem or somehow they did something to make it happen. And then they end up taking out all of the pain and the fear on themselves. Yeah. As I, as I wrote in the book, um, I talk about exactly what you just said about, taking on that, that it was my fault. You know, my dad abusing me um, was completely my fault. It had nothing to do with it. At least it, that was what he made me to believe and what I believed in it, that the abuse was for a reason. Would you mind being specific about what it is that he did to you so that our audience can understand the level of courage that it took for you to face these issues? I, he was an angry man, um, very, very fearful. Um, still don't know today what the context of that fear was. But he would come home at night enraged, um, no matter what he was either from coming from the golf course or if he was coming from work. Um, alcohol definitely um, helped um, with that rage. Um, he was not the kind of drunk that was happy-go-lucky. Um, it actually just fueled his rage even more. Um, so uh, having a sister that was, was older than I um, and was out of the home uh, before I even, you know, reached mid-adolescence at, at that point, um, it was between my mom and I who was going to get the abuse that night. 
Um, it was both physical um, and emotional abuse. Um, and I can still remember um, thinking about, geez, what did I do today? You know, that he's going to come after me about. Did I say something to somebody? Did I do something? Did I not do something? Um, it, 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 just trying to justify in my mind, was I going to, you know, stay off the radar or, or not? Um, and ultimately, it didn't matter. Um, he would have rage in his eyes. I, I mean, I can see it clear as day today, as today. Um, his face would get beat red. His voice would be angry. Um, he would go into his room and uh, more times than not, he'd either use his hand or most of the time a, a belt. And I can still remember the belt and, and how shiny the belt buckle was. And I remember either being put up against the wall or, or bent over a chair. And I remember the belt hitting me on my backside. And and it's thinking about it right now, I don't even remember it being painful. All I can remember is it being shameful. And I remember crying um, through all those events. Um, I remember my mom not really being there to console me, just kind of shaking her head and walking away. Um, she did witness most of it. And... Um, Boy, it's still tough to talk about today. Um, I remember trying to avoid him the next day, the next morning. Um, he would never say anything. He would just walk right by me in the morning and out the door to work. And I go off to school and just hope that, uh, that today would be a better day and that I wouldn't have to, to take the abuse. Um, but that was really the first... 18 years of my life until I, uh, until I actually left home um, a month after high school. Do you remember sort of blaming yourself and feeling like you, you were at fault for the things that he did? Oh, I, I, absolutely. It's like I was saying is that I, I kept searching my mind about, okay, what did I do or what didn't I do? Um, it was just going to be anything that, that he was going to be able to focus his rage on if you know, he didn't want to take it out on my mom, he'd take it out on me. And, and more times than not, it was me than my mom, I think, because I was the male figure in the house. Um, and even though I was a, a, a young child, he still looked at me as a man. And, and, you know, young boys aren't supposed to cry. Young boys aren't supposed to be different. Young boys are supposed to be tough and put up with it. And whatever justification he had in his mind um, was that this was good for me. So he really believed that he was teaching you how to be a man by hurting you the way that he did? He, he, never, he never lectured. He never really lectured me in that way. Um, I think in his mind that that's how he was justifying it. At least that's how I assumed he was justifying it. Um, no, he never, he never talked to me. He just hit me. So how did you handle the incredible shame and, and sort of hypervigilance that you had to live with? I, I didn't handle it well. I think you know, I think it changes your trajectory in life. Um, I had very low self-confidence. Um, I, I tried everything to, to stay away from uh, in, in really in engaging anyone in, in terms of where it could have negative um, aspects on it. Um, I kept a very small, close group of friends um, that weren't really aware of it because I wouldn't have anybody come to my house. I was just too embarrassed about it. And yeah, I was, I, 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 I felt the shame. I still feel I'm sitting here right now talking about it and still feel the shame right now that I still feel after going, you know, having years of therapy, having years of hypnotherapy on it and actually coming to grips with it and, and understanding and embracing that young child and so on and so forth, I still feel the shame today. So um, you, you didn't become hugely self-destructive as some people do. I, th I think, and I've thought about that a lot. I think for me, my dad was an alcoholic and I saw how it ruined his life. It, it, it ultimately killed him. Um, it, it, Surely, and I, I don't know, it was just pure luck, timing or whatever. He was pretty successful in business. Um, but he did alienate 
everybody he came in contact with. That was not only business associates, but employees and family members. Because I remember growing up early on and, and having a lot of his family and my mom's family around. And through the course of years into my teenage years, that dropped off to where nobody wanted to be around him. Oh. So I, I, I think just seeing how he was as an alcoholic kind of not only scared me, but steered me away from any of those ad addictive type of things or trying to mask those things um, or taking on any self-destructive behavior because I wanted to be the antithesis of him. So, I, you know, I, I luckily I had some good friends that, that had fathers that, you know, were more nurturing in that way. Um, I had some teachers, I had some athletic coaches, I was lucky enough, probably, what kind of saved me was I was above average athlete. And so athletics actually um, kind of took the place in, in terms of, of, of nurturing and mentoring and so on and so forth in my life to get me to where I am today. And Where did you find the courage to do the amount of self-examination that it took in order for you to get to a place where you're at relative peace for what happened? I, yeah, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's courage or not, but I guess ultimately it is. Um, I did a number of years of, of talk therapy, uh, which helped immensely, but there was still something that was sitting inside of me, something that was bunched up inside of me that I felt needed to come out. I didn't know what that was. Um, there was a lot of self-examination, you know, done through the talk therapy. But again, there was still something that wasn't sitting right with me. There was something sitting on my chest that I couldn't get off um, at that point. And it, it was recommended that I try hypnotherapy at, at that point. Um, I, I think I was uh, a little bit pessimistic about hypnotherapy. I kept thinking about, you know, watching on TV, uh, hypnotists on TV and, hypnotizing people into doing stupid pet tricks and thought that, you know, that was the natural parallel to, uh, to hypnotherapy as well. But uh, I was lucky enough to have a couple of friends of mine that had gone through it and had some pretty significant breakthroughs with doing hypnotherapy. So um, I thought, well, at least I'll try it for one or two um, sessions. And, and, you know, I can remember my first session like it was yesterday and being on the couch and clutching the throw pillows on the couch and, and, and closing my eyes. And, and before I knew it, I was crying or sobbing uncontrollably. And that hour seemed like it only lasted a few seconds. Um, and, and from that point on, you know, through a, a number of, of sessions, probably a, a dozen or more sessions of hypnotherapy, um, something happened um, one day. And I was thinking, boy, I feel different. And what was different about it was I didn't have that bunched up feeling in my chest anymore. It was gone. Um, you know, you're bringing up a really good point about therapy and what kind of therapy works and, and, and what kind of therapy is necessary in order to get to a place where you can experience the relief that you're talking about. Uh, the sad thing from my perspective as a therapist is that I, I see a lot of people who've been to other therapists and they, um, have been diagnosed, the treatment plan is, you know, presented to them. The person comes in feeling bad about themselves and the therapist agrees with them that there's something wrong with them. And then they go about trying to figure out a way to alleviate whatever symptoms the person carries with them. It sounds like you had a different experience in that um, your symptoms weren't the most important thing to focus on, but really what you were feeling deep down inside. Uh, the reason I consider that to be so important is that... Um, when a person is experiencing trauma, they don't feel what's happening to them. You go into an altered state of consciousness in order to survive the experience. And so the feelings get sort of lodged inside your body. They get frozen inside of you and they become a reference point. And a lot of your energy then goes into managing those feelings, usually not on a level that you're aware of. Oftentimes it results in depression and anxiety because uh, most of your energy, again, is going into just keeping things at bay because it feels so scary to let yourself feel what it is that happened to you. Um, I, I think the, the, 
going back to therapy, I think probably one of the biggest epiphanies I've got during therapy was asking my therapist, how do I not fall back into the same behaviors and the same patterns just we talked about in, in what Socrates was saying um, that I had done for the first 30 years of my life or, or maybe even longer when I had that conversation. And the advice was, you have to sit in your shit. I mean, it was that blatant and, and that right in my face. And it wasn't that you have to sit in your shit for a day or a week or a month. You have to sh sit in your shit for a significant length of time to get through all those emotions of anger and, and, and sadness and acceptance and compassion and em empathy till you actually reach a point of clarity. <clears throat> um, I, I understood that theoretically when he was saying that to me. Wasn't sure I could do that. Um, <clears throat> but I was willing to give it a try because I just didn't want to fall back into and, and live the same way I had been living. I knew it wasn't working for me. It wasn't going to work for me. I knew there was a better life out there for me. And so it was worth giving it a shot. Um, you know, like I said, I'm willing to do anything once. Um, it, it, it took, I'll have to, I'll have to be honest, um, probably for the first handful of weeks, I thought, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work for me. I don't know how anybody, how anybody does this. Um, it, it was, you know, I was crying, I was angry. Um, I'm thinking, I'm not going to get through this. This is no different than than just doing doing therapy. I've already done therapy. I've done hypnotherapy at this point. And, and I think there, there came a time kind of in the second or third month of, of sitting there and, and sitting in my shit and, and trying to get to this point of clarity that I finally thought to myself, and I don't know what that feeling, it was just this intuition, I think, um, that I got that says, okay, you're almost there. You're almost there. You just got to keep going. So you could feel it deep inside your body. I could feel, I could feel the change inside my body. And then this, this inner voice said, you got to keep going. You got to keep going on it. <clears throat> and then I, I, I got to a point where, uh, for, for lack of a better term, the skies opened up for me. Right. And I saw things, I finally saw things differently. I know that that sounds like a load of bull, but that's how it happened for me. I mean, it, not that the seas parted and the whole thing, but this seemed like the sky opened up and I had a completely different perspective on things. Now, not to say, not to say that I'm a hundred percent there. Um, because I think going through so many decades of, of being comfortable with the default, and being comfortable with something that's not good for you, but it's still comfortable, it's familiar, it feels good in some way, um, that I still have, I still go to therapy, just for the, the standpoint of holding me accountable to the tools I have now and that clarity that I gained. So I don't fall back into that default all the time. You know, Kim, you bring up a really good point, which is that... Um uh, no matter how painful it gets, you were willing to hang in there. And then you did what it took in order to um, manage the fear in a way that it didn't completely discourage you from moving forward in your healing process. I mean, it, it, it's, and I totally get why most people won't do it or, or can't do it. Because I was at that, I was at that point where I thought that you know I was just going to throw up my hands and say, "Well, this is this is my lot in life. I'm just going to have to continue on this way." Um, but it it was worth the journey. It was worth the process. It was worth working through all that pain. They, like they said, anything worth keeping um, doesn't happen overnight. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I would encourage people. I mean. There is no magic pill, right? There is no magic book. There is no magic person. It's really just you and time and, and sitting with yourself and, and working through all of these things that weren't working for you, things that made you angry, things that made you sad. Yes, most a lot of us were victimized. You know, um, you have to choose whether you know you accept that victimization 
or you're going to live as a victim, right? And I think the important thing that I learned through hypnotherapy was, you know, I understood that I was victimized and so on and so forth, but it was really embracing that inner child, that inner child that wasn't nurtured, that wasn't embraced, that had no compassion, had no empathy, um, which made it much more easier for me to deal with. You know, um, I've done a lot, a lot of research on trauma because it's one of the uh, specializations that I um, that I do in my practice. And it's really kind of interesting in a way that um, not just humans can be traumatized, but animals also experience trauma. Uh, I read a book a number of years ago about a man who went to Africa and he was filming cheetah going after impala. And he wanted to uh, sort of understand the nature of the predator-prey relationship. And he would, you know, watch the, the cheetahs chasing the impalas, and more often than not, uh, the, the cheetah would catch the impala and eat it and go on its merry way. But on occasion, that they would be running full speed, and then all of a sudden, the impala would fall over and appear to be dead. And the cheetah got really confused because cheetahs only eat live kill. They won't eat anything that they don't kill themselves because their digestive system is not able to handle things that are baked in the sun like other uh, types of animals. So if they don't kill it, they won't eat it. So the cheetah stops and it does what cats do, which is kind of, you know, batted the impala around a little bit, but the impala appeared to be dead. So I'm assuming, I can't read a cheetah's mind, but I imagine what the cheetah said was, oh my God, I can't believe this, and gets up and walks away. And the researcher kept the camera on the Impala to see what would happen next. And what happened was the Impala started to tremble. And it spent about three or four minutes trembling back to life again, got up and looked around, and I'm assuming it said, holy crap, I can't believe I'm still alive, and got up and just wandered away and lived a normal Impala life. Well, this guy was um, really brilliant in his notions about trauma, and so... What he decided to do the next time he witnessed this between an impala and a cheetah is that um, he started messing with the impala while it was trembling. And so it didn't get to com complete its nervous system release of the trauma. And then all of a sudden the uh, impala woke up, but it couldn't function normally. It became hypervigilant. It, it, it was completely unable to uh, function as a normal impala. And, um, and that didn't go away. So it became a traumatized impala that was suffering post-traumatic stress, and it ended up being uh, consumed very quickly because it could not resume its normal behavior again. And I thought that was an incredibly brilliant thing to understand um, because as, as human beings are very much the same way. When we become traumatized, um, we become detached from ourselves. A lot of times people, they actually play dead. A lot of people that I've worked with um, when they've been sexually abused, as an example, become frozen. They don't fight. They don't say anything. They don't scream. They don't try to run away. They just play dead because they feel so threatened by the person that's uh, preying upon them that they freeze just like uh, the Impala. The difference between us as human beings and, and animals that don't have a cortex, which is the front part of your brain, is that human beings don't get the benefit of just trembling back to life again. Now, it's not unusual for us to tremble when we're afraid, but unfortunately, it doesn't do the trick of completely releasing the trauma. Uh, as human beings, we have to process that trauma, not just on a physiological level, but also to be able to, uh, to share the experience with another person. And the healing takes place, as you described, by allowing yourself to connect with the feelings, which are buried within your body, but also to feel like you're not alone in facing the depth of the terror and the shame and all the other feelings that you experience when you're being traumatized. I don't know if any, if there's anybody out there that hasn't suffered some trauma in their life, but you know, I, I had my fair amount, obviously we just talked about that and, and it took me quite a while to, to work through the whole self-examination and sitting in your shit process and so on and so forth. How does it work for somebody that probably hasn't suffered a lot of trauma in their life or, or at least doesn't think they've suffered a lot of trauma in their life in terms of self-examination and, and what, the, what kind of breakthroughs they, they have? 
Well, I, I, I mean, you can't imagine how many people I see that have symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but don't really look at what happened to them as being traumatic. There was a fellow I was speaking to recently whose uh, dad just raged at him every day. She didn't hit him physically, but she yelled at him intensely every day. And he would stand there and just sort of take it. And he would say to himself, you know, she'll get over this after a few minutes and, and I'll just go into my room and everything will be fine. And in his mind, that wasn't trauma. And so uh, he didn't understand why he became such an anxious person as time went by and why he felt that the world was not a safe place to really live in because he didn't associate his symptoms of anxiety and depression to the fact that he was very, very um, mistreated in a very, in a deep emotional way. So I know I'm not directly answering your question because not everybody has deep trauma, but generally speaking, when we're born, we have a really strong need to please our parents. And we do whatever is necessary in order to get their love and attention. And even the most well-intended parents have an idea of, you know, what makes a good person, what makes a, in quotes, bad person, what they want from their kids, uh, what they would prefer not to have their kids, you know, be like. And the more sensitive you are, the more that you become in tune with what your parents want from you. And if it's very different than who you are by nature, you stop really being yourself and you start becoming, and this is not a conscious process, but you start becoming a different person. The The sad part about that is that you can't ever trust the love because it's based on false pretenses. But in order to feel a sense of security, you give up who you are and you become someone that pleases his parents and, and does the best he or she can to, uh, you know, to feel connected to the family. That is a type of trauma to be disconnected from yourself. I mean, that, I mean, that's me, right? I, I'm the one that was led down a, a path, a, a way my parents wanted me to lead my life, right? Even though my mother called me different, and that wasn't in a complimentary way, but she called me different. My dad said I would never amount to anything in life, and he told me that not only in my upbringing, but he told me that when I was married and in, in my 30s at, the, at that point, was still telling me that, and I believed it right? Um, it, it took me a long time to disengage from the path that they wanted me to go down. And, I, and I'm not even clear what path that actually was, but whatever path that I chose to go down was never the right path, right? When I decided that during college, I wanted to be a first responder for a period of time, they, they didn't back that up. They said, that's a dead end job. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to do anything for you. Why are you doing that? Right? still probably the best to this day is probably the best job that I ever had in, in terms of, of the adrenaline, the excitement, the being able to help people, the camaraderie and, and so on and so forth. So taking that step to the left when my parents wanted me to go to the right actually helped me start breaking away from where they wanted me to go. And for me to start examining how I wanted to live my life, if that makes sense. Sure. At that point. Um, it, 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 and then coming, you know, from first responder to, you know, becoming a healthcare executive and, and so on and so forth, they still never saw that as the right path for me. And I don't know if that was just jealousy, if that was where that was emanating from, from them. But when you talk about wanting to please your parents, I, I think it, it went to a certain point for me, right? I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to please them for acceptance and, and validity and for the abuse to stop happening and so on and so forth. But you get to a point where you realize no matter what you do, it's never going to be good enough. Right. Right. And I still think probably in the last decade or, or so, I've come to a lot more grips about it and, and been a lot more, and we'll talk more, throughout the podcast and it's in the book as well about the fear of happiness and, and reaching really a neutral point of contentment, which, you know, I reached a few years ago um, where I'm very content in who I am, what I'm doing, who I'm associating with and how I'm living my life. Um, but if I hadn't gone through this whole self-examination, if I hadn't gone through depressions and, 
and PTSD. Um, I don't know if I would have ended up here. You know, I'm not sure because we can't ever know what we would be like without the experiences that we've had. You know, it's really interesting when you talk about the way that you were raised and the things that happened to you and how you uh, became someone who was eager to please and tried really hard to garner your parents' uh, approval. Uh, when I look back on my life, I was exactly the opposite, but for the same reason. I became an incredibly rebellious uh, child at a very early age. I would say that by the time I was eight or nine years old, I probably got in a physical altercation with another child on a daily basis. I'm not sure why the neighborhood I lived in was, was uh, it, it was a middle-class you know, Jewish neighborhood. You wouldn't think it would be filled with people that wanted to fight, but I fought almost every day of my elementary school life. You were the antithesis of me because I was afraid of confrontation. Right. I, I lived for confrontation because when I looked at other children, and I didn't really understand this till I was older, but when I looked at other children and I saw vulnerability in their eyes, it made me want to hurt them because I hated how vulnerable I felt. And I really didn't understand it at the time. I just figured that the way to be strong was based on my father's model, which is either you're going to hurt other people or they're going to hurt you. And those are the only two choices in life. So I became a fighter. And I was not a very nice kid. And I look back and I feel really ashamed of the way that I lived. But I didn't know any better at the time. So I guess part of why I'm saying all of this is because being a pleaser is not the only way that people deal with abuse. You can also become quite rebellious. Now, I spent a lot of time in therapy when I was in my 20s, and luckily, luckily enough, my parents uh, could tell when I was in my late teens that I was not the happiest kid in, on the block, and so uh, they were, luckily, they were therapy-minded at a very early time in the process of, of psychotherapy, and so they encouraged me to start looking at myself, and I spent almost a decade, and I really enjoyed the process, and I thought that it was really uh, helpful and wonderful, and I became a psychologist as a result. Um, because my mentor uh, took me under his wing and uh, as a psychologist and told me that he believed that I had what it you know took to become a really good therapist. But when I was in my mid-30s, I started having the same nightmare over and over and over again. And I thought to myself, this is very odd, because I would wake up screaming and kicking to the point where my wife was afraid I was going to hurt her, because it was the same dream every single night. I dreamt that I was in a a green tiled room and somebody was chasing me with a syringe and I couldn't get past that moment in the dream because I would wake up sweating and, and hyperventilating. And I thought to myself, boy, I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, but there's something that's not okay. And I had already thought that I did most of the therapy that person needed to do in order to get to a relative place of comfort because I was until that started to happen. Well, this coincided with my daughter turning four years old and I didn't really understand at the time that sometimes when a child becomes a certain age, it can trigger uh, memories inside of a parent that they um, have sort of repressed in a way. Mm -hmm. So I decided to learn hypnosis and, and, and try to approach it from that perspective because when I went back to talk to my mentor, he said, I don't know what to tell you. We've done, you know, we've examined every cell in your body and I can't imagine why you would be having this difficulty. So I started doing hypnosis and... Um, uh, I had a, a really profound experience uh, where all of the memories came back to me of what happened to me when I was four years old, which was the age that my daughter was, when, when all of these nightmares started to happen. Now, uh, uh, sadly, it was a very traumatic situation. I went to the hospital to have surgery, and I was molested by an orderly in the hospital. And he told me that if I told anybody what he did to me, that uh, he would kill me. Now, unfortunately, he was the person that wheeled me into surgery the next morning. And when they were putting me under anesthesia, I actually, because I was starting to fade away, I thought they were killing me. I thought that he was actually in charge of, of putting me to death. And I, was, and I remember going under anesthesia screaming, I won't tell, I won't tell, I won't tell. He was going to make good on his promise. Right. And I didn't, because I was four, I really didn't understand that I wasn't being put to death. But I can tell you that when I woke up from the surgery, the memory of being abused was completely erased from my consciousness. It never came up in any of the therapy I did. It didn't show up in any of the behaviors that I, uh, that I exhibited as a, as a person. It's only when my daughter's little body was the size uh, and shape that I was at the time 
that I was abused that I started having this nightmare and then remembered very clearly what it is that happened to me. I'm guessing that's pretty common that we black out severe traumas that happened to us at various points in our lives? Well, I'll tell you that before this happened to me, I was extremely skeptical about the idea that you could have a repressed memory. Uh, it was during the time that uh, that therapists were being um, accused of implanting memories in their in their clients, and that uh, and that hypnosis was given a very bad name because um, people believed that therapists were, you know, convincing their clients that they were abused when they weren't, and so on and so forth. And I bet trial lawyers warn against that, though. Well, I, I will only tell you that I, I just didn't know what to think because. Um, uh, it was beyond my imagination that a person could re re repress a memory that significant. But then I became that person, and it completely changed uh, my orientation toward being a therapist. And I looked back and I thought to myself, wow, how many times have I been working with someone and their symptoms were telling me that something happened to them? And because I didn't recognize it within myself, that I couldn't see it in the person that I was working with. And so uh, it really changed everything about the way that I approached being a therapist because I understood that that um, in, you have to do your own work to get to a place where you can be successful and as helpful as you need to be as a practitioner. Do, do you think you're a more astute or more in-touch therapist because you've had those traumas in your life? Well, it, it certainly helps me understand what people are going through. Um, I welcome people into my life that have had things happen to them that in your wildest imagination you couldn't imagine, the kind of abuse that people suffer. I've worked with, with people that have been abused by, sexually abused by mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles and strangers and teachers and clergy. Um, I sadly went to a seminar once and uh, was talking, it was about sexual abuse and I was talking to uh, most of the members that were in the seminar, uh, most therapists are women, so the room the room was filled with women and me and maybe another man or so. And I was describing how many of my clients had been sexually abused by a woman, and I just about got chased out of the room because the women in the room absolutely refused to believe that a woman could be a sexual perpetrator. I, I think the statistics are pretty even between male and female perpetrators. Well, I, I think that it's more recognized that men are perpetrators uh, more than women. Um, and so, you know, I said to the people in the room, so you, you're telling me that I should tell all of my clients that are reporting being sexually abused by a woman, that they're just making it up and that they're all liars. And, you know, they didn't have a lot to say to me uh, because I was dispelling a myth that um, has, you know, been perpetuated in the therapeutic community forever. Very uncomfortable experience from my uh professional life. I don't, we hit on the subject a little bit earlier um, about depression and, and PTSD. And I don't want to gloss over that fact. Uh, I, I may have admitted already or, or haven't admitted that, I, that I'm a depressed person, right? I've, I've suffered three bouts of, of fairly significant depression in my life, all in adulthood, um, probably started earlier on as an after effect of, of PTSD, but was, was not diagnosed um, until later in life. Um, I'm lucky enough, I, I guess, from my standpoint, was I was a functional depressed person. I wasn't the person that, that couldn't get out of bed in the morning, couldn't uh, exist in life, and so on and so forth. I was able to go through life um, and carry on with most of the things that you have to carry on with life, but with a dark cloud over my head. Um, medication did work for me um, in, in terms of that. Um, once I got off the medication, I was fine for a period of time, had a, had a rebound depression. Um, and then the third time you'd think I'd be really knowledgeable about my own depression, psychological or physiological on it. And I'll have, you're the expert on, I'll have you explain um, uh, depression. Um, but I didn't listen to my gut. Um, um, I thought that I knew more about it and didn't need to be medicated, thought I could work my way through it on my own and, and so on and so forth. And, and knew the difference between psychological and physiological depression in, in terms of my, my happy chemicals being um, depleted. Um, but didn't listen again to my own intuition 
again, and, and this is a big topic that we'll talk about throughout the podcast. It's a big topic in our book uh, about listening to your intuition and, and things like that. And, and I wasn't providing my own self-care when I knew exactly what was happening at that time. And, and, and luckily, it got to a, a breaking point for me to where my back was against the wall and I had to, to deal with it. And, and I dealt with it and I dealt with it successfully at that time. But again, I, because I think a lot of people that will be listening here that, that will take the time to read our book and, and so on and so forth have either dealt with depression or has dealt with a PTSD scenario. So I'm, I'm kind of interested from your professional, your professional perspective, can't, can't say those two words together, um, your take on depression and, and, and PTSD and, and people that are kind of going through this world in a haze all the time. You know, you're bringing up a really good point because I believe that as a clinician, my job is to help people recognize what part of their depression comes from brain chemistry abnormalities and what part comes from uh, post-traumatic stress or whatever else is happening in the person's life. Um, And I rely on my intuition in order to sort of divine the combinations of these things. For some people, it's it's obvious that it's just the the situation that they're they're living in and and their past that's coming to haunt them. For other people, it's a combination. Um, I try to help people understand that um, having depleted in uh, chemicals in your brain is not something to be ashamed of. That your neurotransmitters are a lot of times genetically depleted sometimes it actually does come from trauma uh, and I encourage people to consider taking medicine if it feels to me like there is a medical problem that's causing psychological symptoms so uh, it, it just depends on the nature of the person and what it is that um, they bring to the table I will say that my approach to therapy is very different than most therapists I mean I was educated to believe in the medical model of therapy, which is... There's something wrong with you? There's something wrong with you, and my job is to encourage you to believe that there's something wrong with you when you walk in the door feeling bad about yourself, and then I'm supposed to come up with a treatment plan, and we're supposed to figure out how to uh, uh, make you, in quotes, better. Then you're in agreement with your patient, right? That's right. And and if the therapy fails, it's not because I've failed. It's because the person hasn't followed the recipe in the therapy handbook about how you're supposed to treat this particular malady. Well, I think it's, it's tragic enough that someone comes in feeling really terrible about themselves. And for me to agree with them that there's something wrong with them and that they're not okay just seems incredibly unethical and immoral, even though uh, it's what I'm, in quotes, supposed to do. So my approach is very much different than that in that I look at your symptoms as a, uh, a type of communication. So if you're suffering from depression, of course your depression is real. And sometimes it is coming from a medical place and we treat it accordingly. But if it's coming from uh, the the, the circumstances in your life, either present or past or both, my idea is not necessarily to focus on the depression, but to understand that you're depressed for a really good reason. And usually it has to do with the way you feel about yourself deep down inside. And that most therapy, you know, may play intellectual lip service to how you're feeling, but doesn't really do enough to help you really recognize that the way that you feel pretty much determines the nature of your life and how things are going to go f- for you. Uh, I think it takes a lot of courage to, to be willing to be flexible and to, um, to be willing to trust your intuition as a therapist and, and uh, to not have a cookbook that, that, that's handy because your life is a lot less fearful if you can just put somebody in a, in a box and, and, you know, Tell them what the recipe is to get better. To me, I never wanted to readily admit that I was a depressed person. You know, it's not it's not something you want to go talking about out in public. It's not something that you want to admit to your friends. Um, if I have any acting skills, I guess nobody ever knew. Um, because when I finally was brave enough to actually mention to people that I was being treated for depression, um, both in a psychological and a physiological way, um, they go, you're kidding. I, I would have never have known. And, and I don't know if that helped me 
by not um, being forefront in the forefront about it, um, or it hurt me from not being transparent about it to friends. Because when you start talking about it, at least in my experience, it's allowed other friends of mine that have either gone through stuff or had been treated for depression in the past as well admit to me that they could empathize with my situation because they too had been going through similar circumstances and or friends of mine that later on had been going through certain things that now could come to me and say, Hey, I'm going through something similar to what you went through. I need your advice on this type thing. I imagine in your practice that you probably see a lot of people that don't want to readily admit or be transparent about not only victimization, which we were talking about earlier, but depressions or, or PTSDs, because it's, it's insanely private, embarrassing, and shameful. Well, I, I mean, I, what I try to help people understand is that it's no, if it's a chemical depression that comes from a depleted amount of neurotransmitters in your brain, it's no different than if you have diabetes and you don't have enough insulin to balance your blood sugar. I don't know too many people that feel ashamed of uh, being diabetic. That, that, that's a good point. Um, I, I think the maybe depression, it, it, there's it's had a dirty word, right? It's a little bit of a dirty word. It's, it's more personal. Diabetes is more, even though depression is still medical as well, but diabetes fits into that, you know, kind of chronic illness category where I, there wasn't a common belief in depression. Um, you know, till probably in the last couple of decades that, that there was some societal acceptance to that. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, you know, um, depression again, takes a couple of different forms. Let me give you an example. Like, you know, like my mom would always tell me with, you know, when I was, I was this highly sensitive child, right? So I was crying, I was sad, and so on and so forth. And it was like, she always used the the term, disrupt some dirt on it, it will be okay. Like I had an abrasion on my skin. Right. Like just by saying that was, hey, just pull up your bootstraps and move on with life, right? So there was this common belief that depression was made up. Well, that you I mean, were just a weak person. Most people that come to see me believe that they have failed because they cannot manage their depression by using their willpower. The last time that anybody ever managed a depression using willpower was never. I, I, I tried. <laughs> and most people do. It didn't work. And most people give it a really good try and they feel really ashamed that not only that they're depressed, but they're, that they're a failure because they haven't been able to overcome their depression by using their mind to overcome the way that they feel. I don't see how that that's possible, but I understand why we why we do it. Look, you can influence depression by the way that you choose to live, just like you can influence di being a diabetic by the way you choose to live. You're not going to cure the underlying cause of the malady by the choices that you make. Eating Twinkies and drinking Jack Daniels. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's probably a good idea if you're diabetic not to do those things. Just like, you know, in order to, to adequately to, you know, uh, uh, you know, work with depression, you have to be willing to consider therapy, to consider eating well, to consider sleeping well, to get your exercise properly, all the different, you know, ways that you can manage depression. But using your willpower and shaming yourself and telling yourself that you're a failure is not exactly a recipe for success when it comes to most psychological issues, but it's, uh, depression especially. What, so we have most people, uh, what I assume, that come in to see you, and, and again, speaking, speaking from personal experience, have low self-esteem, low self-confidence, whatever you want to call it, issues. How do they get enough courage to actually pick up the phone and give you a call? You know, I'm not sure about that. Um, some people tell me it's because uh, they have a friend or a, or a relative that's very concerned about them. And finally, if enough people tell the person that, you know, that they should probably consider getting some help, uh, they're willing to do it from that perspective. Um, 
I think that some people get to a place where they just can't do it by themselves anymore. And they do come in to see me with their tail between their legs, feeling like there's something really wrong with them and that they failed terribly. Um, what I try to help people understand is that it's usually not you that's the problem. It's usually what happened to you in the form of whatever it is that happened to you that shouldn't and what didn't happen for you, which is not being properly uh, loved and protected as a child. And um, so you develop an attitude of unworthiness and and looking at yourself because all children blame themselves for whatever happens to them or doesn't happen for them. Um, and that once a person begins to understand that it's the way that they look at themselves, not who they are, that's the problem, uh, it can change things quite drastically. I ask people to consider it like, you know, there's people in prison now who declare their innocence. Now, I know everybody in prison says they're not guilty. But when they do DNA testing on some people and the crimes they've committed, they actually find that there are people that have been imprisoned and they're not guilty. So but, I ask, But we're convinced... That they were guilty. Well, either convinced or that they were, you know, railroaded by, you know, whatever. Um, but it, it, when you start to look at your attitude as being more of a problem than who you are, it's kind of like doing um, uh, emotional DNA testing, that you've been blaming the wrong person or at least holding the wrong person responsible all this time, thinking that you're the problem instead of really recognizing that that the problem is what happened to you and what didn't happen for you. Now, I'm not interested in people hating their parents and, you know, um, and all of that. It's really more of allowing their responsibility to go where it belongs. Because if you can stop looking at yourself as being a bad person and start really recognizing that what's missing in your life is compassion and that the lack of compassion leads to loneliness and despair of all different kinds, then once you start to see yourself differently and you recognize that, uh, that what's missing is really not being loved properly and not feeling a sense of well-being and security in the world, that's when your life can really start to change. We live in a world now where um, memes and, and, and quotes and, and spiritual gurus and, and obviously in the United States being the, the, largest self-help publishing um, publication in, in the world um, where there seems to be um, a, a lot of help in terms of enlightenment out there, right? And, and I'm a believer that if somebody actually cares, whether they're a therapist, whether they're a coach, whether they're a, a spiritual guide, whatever, that's all, and they're going to be, they care enough to help somebody that, and that somebody's going to get something out of that. So I think that's a good thing, right? But I also think in society today, we're, we're a little bit misled by this, this kind of self-help journey, this, this ability to read a meme or behavioral cognitive therapy in terms of putting 100 post-it notes on your, on your bathroom mirror and, and changing a behavior that way. Um, I just don't see that as being a sustainable approach to healing your inner wounds and having you achieve your highest potential. Well, I mean, you're bringing up a really good point, which is that um, unfortunately therapy can be quite intellectual in its, uh, in the way people experience it. And, you know, then you can become incredibly self-knowledgeable, but nothing really changes because it's not what's in your head that needs to change. It's learning how to become more peaceful within your heart and learning how to really focus deeply on your inner self, learning how to trust your intuition, learning how to feel that sense of connection to yourself. And again, I want to remind everyone that I'm not talking about being self-centered, which is obnoxious. I'm talking about being centered within yourself because most of us are conditioned to, to be centered outside of ourselves. We care way more about what people feel and think about us than we do uh, the way we feel and think about ourselves. So I try really hard both uh, as a practitioner to show people what it looks like to be connected to my intuition and what it feels like for them to be connected to their intuition. Um, I had an experience a number of years ago that was a really important in my development as a practitioner in that I was working with a man that I'd known for a couple of years and um, uh, it seemed as though we were making progress 
but I was sitting with him one day and we were talking about his work and this is a real difficult subject to bring up, but I just kept getting this overwhelming feeling that we were not talking about what we needed to talk about. And I was overwhelmed with this feeling that I needed to talk to him about oral sex, which was nothing to do with his work or anything that we ever talked about before that time. And I had a quite an argument with myself in my head for about 20 minutes, refusing to bring up the topic because I thought to myself, he's going to think I'm crazy. He's going to, you know, I was making it more about myself than him, which is something I try never to do. But I was embarrassed to bring up a subject like that because we'd never talked about sex before. And, and certainly not something uh, uh, as personal as oral sex. And finally, I gave in to my intuition that said, talk to him about oral sex. You need to bring up the concept. So I took a deep breath and I said to him, uh, you know, there's something we need to be talking about here right now that we're not talking about. And he looked at me sort of with a little bit of alarm because he'd known that at other times I'd brought things up in our therapy that were kind of surprising to him. And I said, do you mind if we talk about something that might be really embarrassing and very uncomfortable? And he said, no, you know, that's why I'm here. So I said to him, uh, I'm really sorry, but we need to talk about oral sex. And within moments, he started hyperventilating and sobbing at the top of his lungs. And he looked at me and he said, how did you know? And I said, well, how did I know what? I, I, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. He said, when I was four years old, my mother used to force me to do oral sex on her. And I've never been able to tell you this because I'm so embarrassed and ashamed. And I can't believe that you would allow me in this room if you knew that that's what happened and that's what I did as a little boy. That moment, it changed my life as a therapist because I realized that if I'm going to encourage people to be connected to themselves, I have to be willing to be as brave as they are in terms of what I bring up. Now, I didn't bring this up telling him that something happened to him because I know that I need to be super careful about that. I just brought up a topic that I was being told over and over again inside myself that we needed to focus on. It completely changed the nature of the therapy that we were doing together from that point forward because it turns out that that was not the only sexual abuse he suffered as a little kid, that his mom was actually uh, a very disturbed person that started abusing him when he was an infant and it went on for most of his childhood and he was so terrified that I would judge him and look at him as being obviously the problem and and um, to be able to finally be able to talk about this was a turning point in his life so it's <clears throat> so important that you brought that up because I think it's when you talked about treating the pathology in the in the, in the normal way that you're taught how to be a therapist versus how you actually are as a therapist, that would have never come up. Uh, no, it not. It wouldn't. You're right. Right. And, and this, this patient of yours suffered, I shouldn't say suffered, but actually experienced a huge breakthrough. Right. And I'm sure it changed the relationship that you had with that patient as well in a, in a good way. Oh, absolutely. He felt safer in the room here than he'd ever felt before because he had no more secrets that he needed to keep from me because he was so ashamed of himself. Talking about taking a building off your shoulders. Right. At that point. Anyway, we're, we're coming up against the hour right now. Um, this has been a, a, a tremendously valuable conversation. I, I hope our listeners feel the same way, but it's been tremendously valuable to me as well. Uh, I want to end it because we have talked about a lot of material here in, in terms of self-examination, depression, therapy, intuition, and so on and so forth. If somebody hasn't done or hasn't taken the time to do self-examination in their life, can you kind of give us a couple of quick tips of maybe how they can start doing that? Well, in a certain way, you're preaching to the choir because I've devoted my life to being a therapist and also being someone who is uh, uh, very much involved in my own process of self-examination, and I believe it's a lifelong process. I would encourage people to find the courage and recognize that it's not a shameful thing to look at yourself in the mirror, and that if you're willing to really dive deep, as you have said, that you can find relief that you can't really imagine could exist in your life. 
But I also want to make sure that people understand that it can be sometimes a very painful process. But I think that experiencing that pain and dealing with the grief and the sadness and, and all of that only deepens your compassion and makes you a more loving person. It's really well said. People do the work. It's worth it. Dana, we'll see you next time. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.